with us through challenging times. You walk with us every single step of the way. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is with us at all times. Wherever we're at, you are always with us. And we thank you for your presence that you bless us with. We thank you that you are here with us now. And Lord, I pray that you would let us hear from you today. Give us ears to hear, as Jesus said. Give us ears to hear. Let your word go forth, and let your spirit go forth, and may your spirit do his work through your word, all for your glory. Amen. Well, in ancient Roman times, when a Roman general returned from a great military victory, they would essentially roll out the red carpet for him. And there would be a huge parade with all of Rome gathered together. There'd be festivities. There'd be uh, a party. There'd be much uh, reveling. And it would be a great time. And this general would be highly esteemed as he rode in a chariot throughout the streets of Rome, everyone cheering his name and clapping and hooting and hollering. It was a great, what they would call a great triumphal procession. And all of this, though, there was a duty that was assigned to a slave to be in the chariot with the general. And he had one duty, and his duty was to whisper this phrase over and over, Memento te motarlum essa sic transit gloria, which, which translated means remember you are mortal and thus passes all glory. Or glory, we might say glory is fleeting. So in all the accomplishments and accolades of life, the reminder, even to the greatest Roman general, was it's all temporary and fleeting. 1,300 miles away from Rome, there was this small town called Colossae. Were the Romans concerned about this little town? Well, not really. As long as it kept the status quo and supported what Rome was doing, all was well in Rome's mind. But here's the thing. When it comes to God's economy, he's no respecter of persons. So accolades and accomplishments don't matter. Romans 2 tells us God shows no partiality. So great city or little city, God has plans for each tongue, tribe, and nation. And he's calling people out of them all, right? And he's calling them out to come to him. And this was his plan for Colossae, people being called to the Father. So a brief recap from last week. Colossae was established sometime during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus uh, was about roughly 100 miles away. And Paul was there for a few years doing ministry. And it says in, in the book of Acts that throughout all Asia Minor, people heard the word of the Lord. Now, every book of the New Testament has a, has a primary focus or a theme. And the theme that we see in the book of Colossians is the absolute supremacy and the absolute sufficiency of Christ. And in the book, we will see that he is the head of all creation, and then he's also the head of the church. 
And what prompts the letter is that Epaphras reports to Paul and tells him about things going on in the Colossian church. This is what prompts Paul to write a letter to the Colossians. And he sees that wolves are encroaching. And as we talked about last week, wherever a good work of God is going on, wolves will try to sneak in and disrupt it and even destroy it. And when's the best time to act against a wolf? Before he attacks. Before he attacks. So Paul promptly writes addressing the issues arising and threatening the church. A few things that he's battling is Gnosticism, asceticism, and Jewish mysticism. We'll look at those in the weeks to come. So this passage today that we looked at in the book of Colossians shows us two things that we are known for. Because here's the thing. We talked a little bit last week about the vision of liberty with the three key words. Y'all remember those three key words? Okay. It's always the front row that seems to answer these questions. Either that or my hearing's going, all right? <clears throat> Belong, flourish, go. And here's, here's my heart for you all and for us corporately, collectively together is to be a church that flourishes. So we want to flourish as disciples. Well, what does a flourishing church look like? Well, first, we are known for who we are. We are known for who we are. And we see this throughout these first few verses in Colossians quite a bit. Look at verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So this verse alone contains much regarding our status. One look at the word the very uh, first word that, that describes our condition and who we are, saints. Now you could, in some versions do, translate it holy ones, which would be fine. Saints, holy ones, it's the same root word that we find in Greek that is used to translate holy or saint. It's the same root word when we see that big word, sanctification. And what are the saints or the holy ones, the ones that are sanctified? They are set apart. And here's the question. What are they set apart for? For what are they set apart? Because if you're set apart, what does that indicate? It means there's something different, right? <clears throat> you know, when I was young, this goes back a long time, because I used to watch Sesame Street when I was younger, <clears throat> and the most annoying part of the entire show to me, even as like a seven-year-old kid, was when they'd come on, and it was like one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, y'all remember that, right? And there's like a, this, like it, it split into like four little boxes, you know? And like three people would be doing one thing, like hula hooping, and the other would be like riding a bicycle. And like as a seven-year-old, I'm like, do you really think I'm that stupid? <laughs> like which one of these is different, right? <clears throat> it annoyed me as a kid. But the point is this, one of these things is not like the other. Like if God has set us apart, we are going to be different than what the world is. We should be, and we will be, and we ought to be. So God takes us, and he sets us apart. Part of that setting apart is that idea of him sanctifying us. He has set us apart, what? For himself. He takes us, he sets us apart. He is setting apart a people for his own. But that first process that he does is he justifies us. What does that mean? It means that God declares us to be righteous in his sight. How does he do that? Only through the blood of Jesus. Jesus uh, Justice talked about it today. It's by grace. 
It is by grace we're saved through faith. So it's God's grace that saves us. How does God give us the grace? Through our faith. That's how it's appropriated to us or apportioned to us. It's through faith. But it's the grace that saves. By grace we are saved through faith. So he justifies us and sanctifies us. And this idea of saints points to the idea that God has chosen people to be his own. Look, we can't make ourselves holy, can we? No, we can try and try and try and try. And <clears throat> I remember in, um, in college reading the autobiography of, of Benjamin Franklin. And if you've read that, um, it's kind of boring. But... <clears throat> But he has this, he, it talks about he had like this list of, I forget how many things it is. It's probably like 15 or 20 things that he, every day at the end of the day, he would kind of be like, oh, was I more caring? Was I more kind? Was I more charitable? And he like set up this system to, to I guess, encourage himself to be a better person. Um, to my knowledge, you know, Benjamin Franklin was not a believer. But so he set up this system and it was really, when you're reading it, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're reading this, and the clear picture is it's really about the externals. How has he acted externally? Well, listen, doing all those things, if, if Benjamin Franklin could check off those boxes every single day, and if you could get that same list and check off those boxes every single day, that would not make you holy. Doing things doesn't make you holy. It is God himself who makes you holy. And he does that by the blood of Jesus. That's the setting apart. When you're set apart, that is the pronouncement that you are holy. There's not something you have to do to get holy. God makes the pronouncement, and he says you are holy. In fact, and we looked at it at Reformation Wednesday, there's actually three different types of sanctification that the Bible talks about. One is a sanctification at our initial salvation. It is the setting apart. Then there's what we would call like the progressive sanctification where, you know, each and every day we're growing, we're moving more towards Jesus, we're becoming more like him, the progressive sanctification. And then there's like the perfect or the complete sanctification. That happens when we die, okay? We will never be, <clears throat> from our perspective, completely perfect in this life. But God promises one day we'll be like him. That's going to be a beautiful day. So this idea of saints emphasizes the work of God. Paul echoes it again if you look in chapter 3 of Colossians. Look what he says. He's exhorting them in verse 12. He says, put on then as, God cho as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. But notice the command here in verse 12 of chapter 3. It's put on, so put these things on, but how are we putting them on? Notice what he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So how are these things possible? How can we walk in these commands here? Well, it's only because God has chosen us. We are the holy and beloved, and because God has done that and he has set us apart, then we can walk with compassionate hearts, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, with patience. We can bear with one another. We can forgive one another. Those things come because of how God has treated us. He has chosen us. He has set us apart. 
He's redeemed us. What does that lead to? Well, it leads to back in Colossians 1, he identifies them as saints, but he also identifies them as brothers. And throughout the book of Colossians, he's going to actually mention three different people who are models of faithfulness. So if you look a couple verses down, we read it. Look what he says about Epaphras. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, talking about the gospel, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And what do we learn about Epaphras? Like, he goes to extremes to make sure the Colossians hear the gospel. He goes to extremes to make sure they're growing in their faith. He is a faithful brother. Then we're going to find, if you look at Colossians 4, the same word is used with another gentleman. Colossians 4, verse 7, it says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. So here again, Paul's talking about faithful. So he mentions Epaphras in his ministry, and he mentions that he's faithful. Here he mentions Tychicus in his ministry, and he mentions that he's faithful. And then he's going to mention Onesimus a couple verses later. It says, and with him, verse 9, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. What's the echoing sentiment here? Be faithful like these men. It's like they're set out as examples before us for us to emulate this particular quality of being faithful. Faithfulness is a trait that is hard to find today, but that's what we are called to be faithful to one another, to the Lord, wherever he might call us, to the calling that he gives us to be faithful. Notice the next word that follows faithful is the word brothers, to the saints and faithful brothers. That's our identity. Look, when when the Lord addresses us, yes, he's calling us holy, which indicates our status. Two, he's talking about our faithfulness. But three... We're talking about the family of God here. We are brothers. Brothers is the new identity within the family of God. We're not just individual members, but we're members of God's family where he is our heavenly father. One person said it like this. God's people are identified not by their blood relationship, not by their own nationality or tribe, That's more like how the Old Testament is, about the the kingdom of Israel. But what happens? No, the identity, when Christ comes, is our our identity is now found in him. Now, the the membership is not based on what kinship you are, or what race you are, or what tribe you are. It's about who you are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, what he's the head, as we see in Colossians, he's the head of creation, but he's the head of the church. And we're members of that church. So God's people, it's not about the blood relationship. It's not about a nationality or tribe. That's why you go into different churches and there should be people from all sorts of different nationalities, tribes, ethnicities. Now it's going to be particular. If you live in a, if you live in a, particularly, a particular certain area that particularly has percentages of 
of white people or black people, or that there should be more of those or less of those depending on the percentages of that particular area. <clears throat> but if, even if we started looking at some of our own ethnicities, while we might all be Americans, um, we have much different blood, English blood, German blood, French blood, Mexican blood, Spanish blood, and on and on and on. <clears throat> God's saying here, that's not where our, our true identity is found. It's in Jesus. It says, uh, another author said, because this language is so common in the New Testament, we can easily overlook its significance. It reminds us that we are members of the same family and that we should adopt the attitudes and actions necessary to maintain our familial unity. And his point is well taken. We see this link. Every letter pretty much opens up. Brothers. And you see that throughout each of the books, referencing brothers. And that term there, when it says brothers, the idea is it includes the sisters as well, all right? So we're not leaving you all out, ladies. <clears throat> but it's an all-encompassing term. But because we read it so much and we see it so much, it, we can kind of lose the significance of what it's really indicating for us. So his point is well taken that we should adopt the attitudes and actions necessary in maintaining familial unity. That's why... We read earlier in Colossians, like if you have an issue with someone forgiving one another, we have to walk in the unity of the Spirit. Why? Because we're family. Like you don't get to choose your family. True? Right? <clears throat> for good or for bad, your mom, you, got, you, got, you got your mom and dad for, for who they are, you got your kids for who they are, your grandparents, and you got the people here for who they are. Right? God chooses those. He's sovereign over all of that. And that can be tough sometimes for us to accept. But we are brothers and sisters in Jesus. That should affect how we treat one another. It's not just, oh, my, this guy over here who goes to my church. No, it's my brother. It's not just, oh, this girl who sits in the fourth row. No, it's, it's my sister. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, serving Jesus as the body of Christ. Notice also that he's referred to those people mentioned previously, Epaphras, Tychicus, and Onesimus. He used the term faithful, but if you were listening, he also used another term, which was beloved. Beloved. And he, and he calls the Colossians that as well. If you look back in verse 12 of chapter 3, he calls them not just God's chosen ones, not just holy, but he also calls them beloved. And a lot of times, depending on maybe what kind of church you grew up in, depending on your background. Maybe you didn't even grow up in a church. <clears throat> but sometimes it is hard for people to see themselves as loved by God. But friends, brothers and sisters, you know, one of the best-known verses, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. He so loved the world. If you're a part of the world, he so loved you. <clears throat> And here he uses an intimate term, not just to talk about Epaphras, not just to talk about Tychicus, not just to talk about Onesimus, but to talk about the Colossians. And I'll say by way of extension, to talk about us. We are the beloved. There's many different ways we should see ourselves in Christ. Okay? We should primarily see ourselves as children of God. That's what he calls us. Yet 
to those who received him, to those who believe in his name. It says in John 1, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Children of God. So, <clears throat> and it's a word that we don't hear much, and I'll do a sermon series on it sometime. Um, we've been adopted into the family of God. So, once you're adopted, and, and you know, praise God, we've got people here, families here, who have, who've, who've adopted. Once you adopt someone into your family, they're part of the family, right? There's like no strings attached, or there's no ifs, ands, or buts, right? They're in. Well, when God adopts us into his family, there's no strings attached, no ifs, ands, or buts, like we're in. So if he adopts us, again, it's his action, right? He's the adopter. We're the adoptee. He adopts us into his family. We're the beloved. So many descriptions above. What greater thing could God make about us? I mean, God knows what's best. And these descriptors are coming from him. So we are known for who we are. This is our, our, our description of what God thinks and says about us. The problems abound in our lives in the church because, listen, I get it, we're frail. And we are subject to fail. And we don't always walk according to the scriptures. Well, this was true of the Colossians as well. We're going to see. They're falling short in some areas as well. But what's the resounding message that God delivers to them and to us? It's this. Here's how I see you. Here's how I see you. All those descriptors. And think of the different books of the New Testament and the different descripting words that are used to talk about us. The vast majority are pretty intimate. They're pretty kind. They're pretty compassionate. He's describing what he sees us as and what he thinks about us. Here's how I see you is what he's saying. And because of that, guess what? It's true. If God says it, it's true. And because of that, it's true. So listen, we are changed. We are changed. This is our description as believers in Christ. We are the brothers. We are the faithful. We are the holy. Not because of something we've done, but because God has already done it through his son. So here's one of my exhortations for today. My exhortation is, live according to your new status. Like you have a new status. Child of God, adopted into his family. Live according to that. Live according to your new relationship. You have a relationship with God that is only possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That allows you to come back to the Father and be made whole again with him. A broken relationship that Adam broke for us, restored through Christ. And we don't just have a new status, we don't just have a new relationship, we have a new identity, and it's in Christ. We're going to talk about that in a second. But here's the thing, Jesus is more than enough. You don't need add-ons to Jesus to be fulfilled. Jesus is more than enough. Why do we always have these descriptions? Why is always Paul writing this, or Peter, or John? God wants to make sure we always remember who we are. Don't forget. And the identity that we have, who you are in Christ, is key 
to who you are, period. So it's not an add-on or a tack-on, it's our key identity. Look at Ephesians, hold your place in Colossians, but look at Ephesians chapter 2. It's just a uh, couple books back. And here's that verse that was mentioned earlier, Ephesians 2, we'll start in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then look what it says here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That workmanship, there's a couple of different translations because sometimes when that word is used in the Greek Old Testament, it talks about like a, a special work that God is doing. So some of the translations try to bring that out a little bit better. The workmanship, like he's crafted us uniquely. And then that created is more the general term when God's talking about just his general works of creation. But here he uses it to talk about, oh, look at that, created in Christ Jesus. Think about that. We've always heard verses 8 and 9 a whole lot, but have you ever seen the verse 10 and ever had that pop out to you in verse 10? Created, created. Created in Christ Jesus. Right? I mean, which, which obviously, you know, reminds us of 2 Corinthians 5, like we're the new creation, <clears throat> but God created us. Okay, he, he initially created us, right? Formed us in our mother's womb. We are a special creation in that sense. But here we're finding out that in Christ we are created. Created in Christ Jesus. He's fashioned us into something new. Did God need help creating the world? No. Did he need help creating mankind? No. Did he need help creating a new mankind in Christ? No. You are God's creation. And if you've trusted in Christ, you are his special creation in Christ. And here's the thing. We've talked about it before. You're either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, there's death. In Christ, there's life. In Adam, it's the old creation. In Christ, it's the new creation. And here's the thing. He who creates has the ownership over the creation. Well, God created it all. Guess what? He owns it all. He who creates has the ownership and when you forget this, what happens? Not good things, right? When you deny this, what happens? Well, not good things. And here's, here's the thing. <clears throat> so that's, that's what we're known, we're, we're known for who we are. Those are those descriptors we've been talking about. But we're also known for whose we are. Back to in Christ. What does that indicate? Because that's what Paul says back in Colossians. That's how he ends the first part of verse 2. Saints and faithful brothers in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. You know, when they, the archaeologists have discovered, you know, the, the Roman catacombs and, and uh, nameless slabs in the catacombs uh, carry the inscription in Christo just latin for in christ 
but also those same slabs carry two other Latin words, in paca, in peace. It testifies like, yes, if you have Christ, guess what? You have peace. Not just a faux peace of, oh, everything's great and normal and fine with the world. No, peace with God. When the Bible talks about peace, the vast majority of the time, it's not just talking about some like internal feeling. It's talking about the idea of countries being at war. Why? Because we were at war with God. There was no peace when you're at war, right? And what does God do? He's like, hey, surrender. Here's my terms. It's unconditional surrender. You need to accept what I've done for you through my son Jesus. Accept, accept it. And then we can be at peace. So here, the early Christians, our, our, the forerunners, our brothers and sisters, had in Christ and in peace chiseled into their, the slabs of their, of their tombs what indicating the newness of joy that comes in Christ, this peace. And the privilege of being united with Christ, his death is not the end. In fact, it's probably the beginning, you could say. In Christ highlights the new identity of this people of God under the lordship of Christ. Think about it. When, when we, we use that term so often or we read it so often, it's almost like the term brothers. We just we read it so much, we just kind of gloss over it. <clears throat> but normally, when you talk about the word in, it normally indicates location, right? Like in the city. Right? Where, where are you going? We're in the city. Uh, it normally indicates location. Well, there's truth in that. When we're talking about Christ, you're located in a new place. And where is that? It's the kingdom of God's son. That's what we're going to read a few verses later in Colossians uh, verse 13 of chapter 1. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So this, this transfer has taken place in Christ. How does that happen? It happens in Christ. I, as I was uh, preparing this week for the sermon, out, one Greek dictionary said this little tiny phrase, in Christ, um, has the implications of this short phrase are too many to be listed and quite challenging to be fully explored. That is a dictionary. <clears throat> but it's true. Like, you, you, could, you could spend hours and hours and days looking at what does it mean to be in Christ. This tiny little phrase that we take for granted so often might be one of the most powerful phrases in the Bible. In Christ. Because if you're in Christ, you have the new life. If you're in Christ, you have the peace with God. If you're in Christ, you are the holy ones. If you are in Christ, you're the beloved. If you're in Christ, you are the faithful ones in Christ. One theologian said, to be in Christ is to belong to him as the originator and ruler of the new age of redemption that his death and resurrection inaugurated. And this term... Paul uses the short phrase in Christ in his letters 33 times. He uses the little bit longer phrase in Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus our Lord 48 times. So do the math. 81 times in his letters he's using one of those two phrases. So we're known 
not just for who we are, but we're known for whose we are. We are Christ's. He has us, we are his, and he is ours. Look at Titus chapter 2. It says in verse 11, chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Notice that last part. A people for his own possession. We are Christ's. We are Christ's. And here, here, because again, what does the grace of God do? It appears, it brings salvation for all. It's available to all who want salvation. They can receive it. It's offered to all. God does not turn down anyone that comes to him. He is a very kind and gracious God. So it's appeared to all, training us. So if you have the grace of God, here's what it does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then what did Christ do? He redeemed us from all the lawlessness, right? To purify us, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what Jesus does. Amen? Amen. Then notice that we're not only the sons, but back in Colossians, we're also the fathers. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. How did Jesus teach the disciples to pray? Our Father in heaven. Our Father. In Romans and Galatians talks about us crying out, Abba, Father, that Aramaic term. Abba, Father. Paul addressed them this way, so did the Colossians. And so, too, do we. He is our Father. So we are Christ's, and we are also the Father's. Look what, look what it says in, in Colossians 1, verse 12. We're giving thanks to the Father. Why? Because of what he's done. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. All of these things that we're reading about, brothers and sisters, over and over again, Who's doing the work? It's God doing the work. Who's, who's qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints? God, right? It's God. He's the one doing that. Who's making us holy? It's God. Who's the one justifying us? It's God. Who's the one that sanctifies us and set us apart? It's God. Brothers and sisters, get a clear picture that God is doing an amazing work in you, but guess what? He's already done an amazing work in you. Okay? He's already done the amazing work. 
He is doing an amazing work, and he will continue doing it. But don't forget that he's already done an amazing work. All these things, just from the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're not even through half of that chapter. We see all these amazing things that God does for us. And the Father sent the Son to rescue us. Why? Because we needed rescuing. Our sin covered us. We fall way short of the mark. So God sends his son to redeem us from our sins. And what do we choose? Well, sometimes we choose our own way. And God's like, like he's like, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Listen, what God offers you in Christ is so much better than what the world offers. Jesus is more than enough. And some of you need to quit saying no and, and start saying yes because you're like, no, I can't stop this addiction. No, I can't believe in Christ. No, I can't uh, make it through this temptation. You're, no, no, no. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Listen, yes, you can believe in Christ. And yes, you can trust in Christ. And yes, you can follow after him. And yes, you can walk with Christ. And yes, you can say no to temptation. And yes, you can resist the flesh. And yes, you can abide in Christ. And yes, you can have fellowship with your heavenly Father. Yes, you can. So stop saying no. If you're in Christ, he has given you his spirit. He has strengthened you to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you have Christ, you have the Father. If you have the Father, you have Christ. And guess what? If you have them, you have the Spirit as well. The triune God is with you so that you can walk according to his purposes, so that you can glorify him, so that you can magnify his name every single day. Our theme for the next uh, 12 months is all of Christ. For all of life. That really sums up the book of Colossians and really what our life should be. Colossians, it's all about Christ. I mean, he just shines through and we get this great description coming up starting in verse 15 of, of who Christ is. But all of Christ for all of life. Jesus must be first in our life. And we either have Jesus or we don't have Jesus. You can't have half of Jesus. You got them all or you got nothing. And if you don't have them, today's the day to have them. And if you have them, guess what? Make sure you're living like it and make sure you're acting like it. So Colossians is going to shine this brightly for us. Remember that triumphal procession that the Roman general had at the beginning? Right? Everyone's cheering his name and talking about it, and, but there's that slave there, right, whispering his name. Well, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, because I want you to see something. Second Corinthians chapter 2, it says, verse 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ, there's that little phrase again, right? We just take it for granted, but there it is. Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. 
You're like, how? Wasn't that what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon? The triumphal procession. Yeah, Paul knows that the Corinthians here are very well aware of what happens when a a Roman general comes in from a great victorious battle. But he draws on that to draw them the illustration in this picture of what? Christ is the one that leads us in a triumphal procession. And he's going to come back someday, and he's going to be having the parade of parades, brothers and sisters, and everyone's going to be shouting his name. And there's going to be a party of parties, right? And here's the thing, for Christ, whatever chariot he's riding, there ain't going to be no slave next to him because it's not going to be momentary. It'll be an everlasting kingdom that he brings in. It'll be an everlasting kingdom that he ushers in. And if you're with Christ, you're a part of that kingdom. It's the Colossian kingdom that's talked about, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what's going to be ushered in fully when Christ returns. Are you prepared for that day? Listen, the world tries to contradict the message of Christ. It tries to throw everything it can at us. So what are we going to do? Well, we need to remember who we are. We need to remember those descriptive words about what God sees about us and what he says about us. And then we need to remember whose we are. We're Christ's. We're the fathers. There is a possession there. They possess us. They own us. There's an ownership going on. But what do we find out? We're like, oh, I don't want, I don't want Christ or God or anyone owning me. What does the scriptures tell us? We're owned by something. And Corinthians talks about we're either uh, slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness in Christ. Like, there's no third option. And we're, when we're talking about salvation issues, there's no third option. It's either in Adam or it's in Christ. There's no third option. There's no middle way. There's one of two ways. You're either a believer or you're an unbeliever. But God, in his mercy, offers the gift of salvation to everyone. It's a free offer no strings attached. Who's the one that's going to save you? It's by grace you're saved. It's God's grace that saves you. What does he want you to do? Humble yourself. Admit that you can't do it, that you can't take care of your sin, that you can't deal with it. You know, you ever, you ever <clears throat> maybe you've, you've uh, done some painting, especially if you're like painting with uh, oil-based paints, I know they've like phased most, most of those out, but you get an oil-based stain or paint on you, man, that, that thing is, it, it's definitely not coming off with just water and soap. You can scrub and scrub and scrub, and you can do all you, you can, you know, if you spill it on you pretty good, you can do all you can to try to clean that up, it's going to be pretty tough. And sometimes that's how we are. <clears throat> People try to clean themselves up. Now, God is the only one who can clean you up. He's the only one. It's back to that list that Benjamin Franklin had. You can do all those externals, but it doesn't make you holy. God is the one who does the work. What do you have to do? You have to trust. You have to trust. 
in Jesus for what he did. That when he was on the cross, that God's wrath was poured out upon him. That your sins were placed upon him. Why? So that you could be made right with God. So God puts your sins upon Jesus and punishes Jesus for what you deserve punishment for. And one of two people is going to pay the punishment for your sin. Either you're going to pay the punishment yourself or Jesus already paid it. And I encourage, exhort, with the strongest of terms today, let Jesus have paid the penalty for you. Trust in him. It is so worth it. It is so worth it. We could, we could just form a line and people could testify how worth it it is to know Jesus as your Savior. We could form a line and have people testify about how, God, how good God has been. We could be here for hours and hours hearing people testify. Because it's true. Christ has done a good work in many of us. And it should be evident to those around of whose you are and who you are. Look to Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, it says in Hebrews 12. And he is calling you to repent today and trust in him. It sounds very easy, and it actually is, but it's also very challenging. And few people sometimes, they just don't want to do that. But you're talking about being at war with God. You're talking about spending an eternity in hell. Like, is that worth it? It's not. So repent today and trust in Jesus. He forgives you of your sins if you but trust. He wipes you clean. And those words that we talked about, the brother, the faithful, the holy, the beloved, that will apply to you as well. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I pray for anyone here who might not know you. That you'd give them a taste of your love for them. Let them see you for who you are. Let them know that you are a good God who cares for them. I pray you'd give them the gift of faith to trust in you. And for the brothers and sisters here, Lord, continue to remind us how you see us, that we are the beloved. You see us as faithful. You see us as holy. It's a work that you've done. And Lord, we ask you to continue that work and make it more true and true in our lives each and every day for your glory. Amen.